Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the third episode of the HO Racing Today podcast with me, Chase Ellis, and Adam Money Penny. Adam comes off this week. He actually had a swim meet he had to go to Saturday and today, so wish him luck on that. He's been working his butt off all week on swimming. So I'd like to welcome a special guest in today, Joel uh, Pennington. He is pretty much the know-all and end-all in terms of slot car racing history. He's been in the sport for over 40 years. And he's pretty much the founding father of many of the hopper classes we have today. So I'd like to welcome him to the lobby today. Hey. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Chase. Uh, look forward to talking with all of you about that stuff. You're very welcome. So I kind of wanted to uh, <clears throat> get into the uh, get into it here. But when did it all start for you? When did you get into slot car racing? Um, in a uh, club at my grade school in 1966. We uh, had a hobby club, and uh, it principally was uh, – we were given an hour every Friday afternoon, and we raced T-Jets on tracks there and uh, had a, one of the teachers – he was a science teacher who would show us how to maintain and take care of the cars and all that stuff, and I really got into it. And that was two years, my sixth and seventh grade year in school. So I got into it, and uh, that's how I kind of got started. Uh, I became the fastest kid in all the neighborhoods. Uh, and neighborhood racing is kind of a small circle, but you know, seventh graders don't drive. So, uh, you're kind of restricted to what you could walk to next door or, uh, what your parents might be willing to drive you to. So, um, that's when I, um, started doing it, but, um, I read car model magazine extensively and they were a magazine of the sixties and, uh, they had uh, a number of things that they would have in their HO section. And I was an avid fan of that. And in my local little grade school club, I uh, won a couple of the competitions, not because I was um, faster than the other guys. It was more because I was reading more about what it took to be fast. And I would go out and buy some of the uh, performance parts that could make your T-Jet faster and stuff like that, the pop-up kits, and put them in on the cars and uh, did pretty good. But uh, then I moved from uh, that town in New Jersey and went to um, – Chicago, where there really was no uh, club or anything like that. So I was just on my own racing neighborhood kids for about a whole two, three years and kind of gradually wound down in my interest in this. And then in uh, 74, early 74, I uh, met uh, a racer in Oak Park, Illinois, Mark Rosenwinkel. And we um, started doing some club racing there. And he knew of uh, another club in Libertyville, Illinois, which had Norm Gardner in it. He was one of the early guys. And we started doing some traveling back and forth with them. And then in fall of 74, we created Illinois Hopra. And mm-hmm. Illinois Hopra is uh, still a running today. And that's one of, one of the founding mm-hmm. groups there. But Hopra itself started in uh, 1969 uh, by a racer called Carl Dreyer. And Carl Dreyer um, created Hopra in Indiana, and that's not too far from Illinois. So we had a little bit of a hotbed here going with Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan Hopra started, oh, I think around 70 or 71. And so all, all those three Hoppers were going. And uh, But Carl Dreyer was the founder of First Hopper Racing, and so to speak. And Hopper first stands for HL Professional Racing Association. Uh, mm-hmm. Carl had won. Uh, the HOCCI. Have you ever heard of that, Chase? H-O-C-C-I? No, I've never heard of that. Car Model Magazine sponsored uh, an event called the HOCCI. 
and you, the little guy, could mail in your car, and they would race it for you. And wow. Carl won a number of those competitions. Carl was later to go on to become an engineer, and rightfully so. If you saw some of the builds that he did in the uh, 60s, he was just way ahead of his time on that. So uh, that's, that's a little bit about how some of the early hopper groups got started and uh, my particular relationship with it. So I came on the scene a little bit later in 74, but uh, it was all forming at that time. Mm -hmm. So I know last episode I talked to Sean Mulder and uh, Chris mm -hmm. Rondo, major staff at Hopper on the 2020 Nats this year. And Hopper has been going on for over 40 years since 75. They've had a national championship. What mm -hmm. was it like, the first ever national championship? How did you guys promote it and how just how did it get going? Well, in um, let's see, there was a Parma race in like 72, 73 that's kind of got famous. And they, some people call that the first Nats, but it wasn't sponsored by Hopper. Uh, Tom Coyne, you heard of him, Tom Coyne? I have not. Okay, Tom Coyne, he's TCP Products, and he was uh, making aftermarket spares. And he was out of Otisville, Michigan. And Tom uh, was in Hopper in Michigan, and Steve Brown was in Hopper in Michigan. And Tom decided that we needed a national race. And so he reached out to the guys in Kansas City in 1975, and they, he reached out to it based on a track he saw in Car Model Magazine, a 120-foot layout that was just a monster out there. And uh, so uh, he sponsored that race. And so we, um, uh, we traveled out there. There was about 35 racers that went to that first race. And we were racing what was the one-class racing that was going on at the time in uh, Hopra. And we all showed up with the cars that we could have been racing in Michigan or Indiana or in Illinois. And uh, there were some other people that showed up at that first match, Gary Beetle. I know you know Gary. Uh, mm -hmm. Gary was there. And so we had about uh, 35 of us there. And it's one class racing with elimination racing that, that happened. Mm -hmm. And um, at that first race, I, um, I, I told you earlier, I mentioned the name Mark Rosenwinkel. Mark mm -hmm. uh, raced one of my cars to fifth place that day. Uh, Norm Gardner uh, finished, I think it was third that day. And a Canadian by the name of Kim Bartholomew finished second that day. And Gary Beetle finished fourth that day. And the winner was Steve Brown from <laughs> uh, um, uh, Otisville, Michigan, or Flint as it actually was. Steve and Tom closely worked together at the time. And they did a lot of traveling and going around at that point. And so they um, they they were all at that first race there, and uh, it was a it was a lot of good energy that race. Mm -hmm. Let me take you to the next step of what happened for the follow up from there. Sure. Okay. So the second event, Mark Rosenwinkel basically said we got to do something with this. You know, this is this is too good. We just can't drop it. And Tom wasn't really running the ball, and there was really no Hopra Senate or Hopra organization at the time. And so uh, Mark went out and picked out the next location, which was in Libertyville, Illinois, at the Pagoda Motor Code Inn. <laughs> we put a track in there, and um, that was the second Hopra. And that was, uh, again, about 30-something racers, Illinois, Michigan, uh, Indiana. Uh, Gary didn't come to that race. Uh, and that happened to be the, the Hopra that I won that day. I won that day and put two other cars in the main, and Tim Bartholomew was, again, second. <laughs> 
our Canadian, <laughs> our Canuck, our sole Canuck that came down for racing. So that was wow. the first year. But that genesis basically took off from there and has been an annual event from 75 to present. And uh, Mark Rosenwinkel kind of took on the leadership over the next couple of years to formulate the Senate. And, uh, and it, up until about 78, uh, it was basically a handshake between a couple influential people in their states saying, we're going to run the race here. But somewhere around 79, I think it's you know, 79 or 80, uh, mm-hmm. we then started the formal process with the Senate where they did selection of the race and, and setting up of things with that. Because mm-hmm. I know now they have the bidding process. You have to submit a bid. Uh, it's just very, like, just high, uh, it's just very high standards really now, how to mm-hmm. post, I mean, how they get, how they uh, post races. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So in the so sequence what, of the races, uh, the, the, the first race that was really out of a hobby shop or out of um, a location that was uh, 1982 in Rockford, Michigan. Mm-hmm. That was a mall. And they had five tracks in there. And this was the first time we'd gone up that step to go to a really big profile public setting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, uh, I was going to ask, I mean, did uh, did the companies like uh, Aurora, AFX, like I've seen the articles and they've uh, some of the major corporations that we know today in the United States actually took notice. Do you know of any uh, just major prizes there were? Because I've heard of actual cars being uh, handed out as prizes and did any of the major corporations in the United States just take notice of this race later on? No, not Hopra. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some T-Jet races that were happening in the 60s. And mm-hmm. there was uh, some, uh, they were on the Ed Sullivan show even, if you know that classic mm-hmm. show. And yes. there was a big winner who was a kid, you know, a 10-year-old. And they'd even pull in some, like, you know, name racers of the time, like Jackie Stewart and those kinds mm-hmm. of guys. And actually put them mm-hmm. on the track and show them racing a car. And that was when there was a lot of corporate money in the toy industry pumping mm-hmm. this thing. And we've watched a gradual evolution of the slot car go from a toy industry in HO racing to being a hobby car, mm-hmm. uh, where we're not necessarily marketing it so that every little kid gets it under their Christmas TV and they go, wow, I got a toy racing <laughs> set, you know? Uh, that, was, that, was, that was a lot of commercial industry behind that at the time. And that even leads a little bit to what was happening because they started out as toys. There wasn't a lot of parts and stuff to make them into race cars. Mm-hmm. And so Tom Coyne Racing, uh, TCP, he started parts. Uh, Gary Beadle in 1975 worked for Ron Grandley out at Speed and Sport, but he wasn't making parts at the time. They would sell aftermarket parts from Aurora or they would sell um, parts that... Uh, a few Tom Coyne would make. And so you really were much more, had to be much more on your own if you wanted to upgrade your cars to make them race cars. Mm-hmm. So I was also going to ask what's, because I know Sean told me you're basically the founding father of the many classes, including the Neo mods. What's the pro that they race today? What's the process of creating a hopper class? Just, is it like time consuming? Is it just, like a mad experiment or what well um you know hopra tries to offer a platform in which uh cars that are being raced out there have rules that are recognized and those recognized rules will then all of a sudden be at an identified class 
And then for it to be a hopper event, maybe they initially give a recognized class that has popularity um, uh, and a chance to do a special event race there. You know, we see support races, as they call them. And if a support race and that has enough momentum and interest, it might become evaluated by the Senate for actually becoming a car class. Uh, Hopper, really, the intent of it is, is to give standardized rules for which these different clubs can have cars. So the club A can go race with club B and not saying, what are you doing? Well, we don't do that here. Well, what are you doing? We don't do that here. It gives that common platform for that. And so, um, you know, uh, creating classes uh, is, is, is a necessary thing to keep the diverse range of racers that we have out there all engaged in racing. Not everybody has the same skills or interest in what they race and how they race. And so if you take Neomod, for an example, you ask that question, how did Neomod get to be a class? Well, we had the Midwest Unlimited series that we were racing our unlimited cars in. And we created that series not because Hopper didn't like it, but the state series didn't like racing unlimited cars. They were just too fast, too over the top for them. And uh, Scott Terry and myself were big fans of uh, unlimited racing, as is Rick DeRosa. And we um, uh, went out there and said, we got to have something that's called a cheap speed class. We said, okay, we'll take the rules for uh, polymod and we'll, uh, we'll morph it to say just polymod rules, but you can put neodymium magnets in it. And, uh, and we were trying to make a, a racing class that was fast and accessible to more people than they didn't have the building skills and such to actually scratch build an entire car and chassis. And so that was, that's what it did. We raced it in the, um, the Midwest series, uh, starting around, oh, I think it was around 98, maybe 97, we started it in and it caught, it caught on and, and people liked it. And we got it to be then a, you know, one of the, uh, uh, event races that wasn't an official class at the Hopper race. And then eventually got enough momentum there at the national race because as rugby running as a, a, an event race like that, it then got the momentum necessary for it to be recognized. And that didn't happen around 2007 or so like that. But we were, we'd already were like, you know, eight, 10 years into racing those cars and they were catching on. People liked them. Mm. So that's, that's how one class got created. Gravity is one that, that I got more formulated. There was a group out there called Brass Car that kind of got things started in the whole gravity direction. But the rules were really crap. I'll say that right now publicly. They were crap rules. <laughs> and so we basically took their rules and kind of cleaned them up and mm -hmm. racing them in our Midwest racing series. And and that got enough interest and the rules got enough recognition. Hopper first recognized the rules uh, and then later they uh, then turned it into a class as we were racing it as an event race at the uh, at the nationals mm -hmm. uh, is it crazy to see i mean how hopper first started as just a bunch of guys just wanting to create an after race and to see how much it's grown the past 40 years 46th annual it's about 46 years it's been going on and uh is it just crazy how you see this just how this hobby originally started with the baby boomers it it suffered a decline in the late 1970s, early 80s, and it's kind of come back as the baby boomers started to retire, start to retire now, and they started introducing it to their kids and grandkids like me. And it's, do you think the hobby is on a current resurgence right now? Pretty much, almost similar to the 60s. Uh, that's a good, good question. Um, 
Yeah, I think that we see people, uh, you know, and I'm the baby boomer age, who, who mm-hmm. did something in their youth that they really liked. And now all of a sudden they're getting at an age where the, they're empty nesters, the kids have left, they've got money and resources, and they, they want to reinvent their childhood. Mm-hmm. And they reinvent their childhood by going out and doing something that was big to them then. And mm-hmm. so uh, HO racing is one of those things. You know, why mm-hmm. does a person in my age group worship a 1968 Cobra Mustang? Hey, it's because it was the car in 1968. Yeah, it was. I couldn't own it. I couldn't own it, but <laughs> I sure respected it. And so now if I'm my age and I can own one and, and drive one, I'm like, wow, look what I just got. Well, the HO hobby has the same... Uh, resurgence with it. There was there is an incredible number of uh, sets that were sold and kids that raced them, uh, and uh, so there, there's a reconnection. I had a uh, recent reconnection with a, a racer who just started emailing me, and he was asking me questions about gravity cars, wow. and I'm like, I'd answer Jan, is his name, Jan Jones. I answer every one of Jan Jones's questions, and eventually I found out that Jan Jones used to race T-Jets in the 70s, and he was wow. now, re- he was a retired Learjet engineer of wow. qualifications. And That's kept, pretty good. I was kept wondering why this guy could build these cars and do all this stuff. And I found out he's a Learjet engineer whose former hobby used to be making uh, good audio guitars by hand. Wow. So he had all the building skills and all the engineering skills to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he says, I've got the bug. This is really connecting with me. I really got the bug. And I wasn't doing anything. Believe me, Chase. I was just feeding the guy information and tell him what I was doing. He went to reconnect with some of his buddies over your way in Cleveland. That's kind of yeah. where his yeah. home route is. And he was over there to do a bike ride with him. And he, he asked, could I stop by your house and see your shop and see what you do? I go, yeah, sure, go for it, guy. And so I had a good three-hour conversation with him. But that's an example of a baby boomer who's reconnecting with their roots. And with mm-hmm. them, will there come other uh, people like yourself who mm-hmm. join us in the race here? Because uh, the one thing about our hobby is it is a lot more affordable than a lot mm-hmm. of other hobbies. You know, the reason I didn't do 24 scale racing was I didn't have the income. <laughs> I was a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't afford that. Uh, why didn't I do mm-hmm. RZ racing? You got to be kidding me. A thousand dollars something more for a car. I can't do that. You know, so going out and being able to buy that car that was, you know, affordable. I mean, the first T-Jets I bought were three dollars. <laughs> I can afford that. Man, I wish they were that cheap then yeah. today, but uh, yeah, I actually would have started. Oh, what were you gonna say? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to, to say that I used to race quarter midgets. You know what those are? They're the quarter the size of sure. midget cars, and I used to race them on concrete asphalt. Uh, I only really ventured in Ohio and Pennsylvania. I raced up in London. There's a little mm-hmm. concrete oval up there, but. Just physical racing is just one of the most expensive sports you can get into. And I really wanted to go up to the sport modifieds and race at Atomic and Portsmouth Raceway Park and just race dirt. But I came to find out pretty harshly that it's you'd have to spend at least, I mean, $20,000 easily, not even including extra parts, not like just, it's a very expensive physical hobby to get into. And one of my uh, that's when I kind of discovered I discovered slot car racing probably around January of last year. Yeah, yeah. And I actually you might know Myron Benner. Uh, he is pretty much the head person here for Cohora Central Ohio HA Racing Association here in Columbus. Mm-hmm. And he, and my dad, um, he is an instructor for my dad's company, which he 
he, he trains diesel technicians called American Diesel Training Centers, and Martin's an instructor for him. And they got into the conversation one day about HO slot car racing. Myron said, like, oh, my God, like, I'm – this is, like, my hobby. I love – it's, like, it's passion you're doing it. And my dad was intrigued. And they talked probably about 20 minutes on this and culminated in saying, uh, Myron's, like, come on down and bring, bring your son. Like, come down and see one of our races. I, I'm hosting this week. So, so my first race was Stock T Jets at Myron's Washington Raceway in Washington Courthouse, Ohio. And I've pretty much been hooked since. I'm recently getting into the hopper classes, and I actually really, really like them. Cannot wait to go to the Nats. And uh, especially the spec and brass racers are my favorites, especially. Well, now, by brass racer, do you mean the G-Jets, or do you mean the uh, uh, brass car? Because that the, the Viper V1s with the stock brass weights is basically what I'll be, what I like the most to race. Right, right, because that's, that's different than the gravity cars. Uh, in the, the, first, the first parts of racing, there was a group out there called Brass Car. They never really took mm -hmm. off. And they had a set of rules. I told you they were kind of bad rules. Mm -hmm. And they were um, racing a gravity-like car. There were no magnet. There's no magnetism. Whereas the uh, mm -hmm. the G Jet cars that you're talking about, they have magnetism. You can turn that car upside mm -hmm. down on a piece of track, and that's not gravity holding it there. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big deal in our first early hopper races, where we actually got that kind of magnetism uh, in a in a car platform. Mm -hmm. So what recently have you been doing with the hobby? Have you been keeping with Hopra? Have you been racing locally? Uh, what have you been doing with it? The rest well, recently? I run the Midwest Series along with Scott Terry, and we mm -hmm. have our five races we sanction every year in, in four states. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things that I do. We have the Midwest Championship. I help organize that, which takes place in Milwaukee once a year. Mm -hmm. And that's usually at St. Patrick's Day weekend. We wanted to have a holiday, and that was the best party holiday. The family wouldn't be complaining about if we took racers away to it. So mm -hmm. we do that in, there. And um, uh, I'm a, more of a one-class specialist, have been all of my hopper career. I, mm -hmm. I don't do well racing multiple, multiple classes. Uh, in contrast, one of my racing colleagues who is with me, Scott Terry, Scott loves racing all the classes. He'll go out there and race mm -hmm. super stock. He'll race modified. He, he, he's getting away from unlimited. We him I both got away from unlimited, and he'll race mm -hmm. gravity and he'll go out there and he won the um, the Hopra Cup race uh, in 2018 out there in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and that's a collective points cup for all the different classes. But for myself, I'm I'm pretty much a gravity specialist at this point. Nice. I've gone away from unlimited. I'm a builder, uh, and because mm -hmm. of the roots of things, I can I can do some great building and a lot of the Hopper classes are assembly kind of cars, super stock. You assemble these parts, but you can't modify the basic platform. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. the guy who wants to create a platform and try to make it better and all that stuff. Oh. So I'm a more of an engineer kind of guy. Yeah. Cool. I'm really trying to get into the building. I don't have, I'm kind of like the budget guy. I don't have many building equipment yet, mm -hmm. but I really do want to get into building. Mostly, I, I just, it's satisfying just to build a car and set it up, just depending on the rules, like any club, I mean, Hopper might have different rules than Kahora, but just satisfaction, just building your own car, just, and giving yourself the best equipment and maybe just you being the best on the track, just with some practice. But yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's, that's, that's me. That's what I'm about. And so, uh, because I started the way back in T-Jets, 
-hmm. I learned to modify T-Jet platforms. I learned to modify AFX platforms. I learned to modify G-plus platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, in the 80s, I started scratch building more uh, unlimited platforms and made all mm -hmm. aspects of those possible. And that's what I stuck with uh, through the 80s, late 80s and 90s and mm -hmm. 2000s, and then converted over to the gravity class. Because the gravity rules are very simple. It's basically mm -hmm. we have a, a pin. If you can pick up the pin, you have magnetism. You're out. <laughs> and after that, it's just general proper rules with you know width, length, and, and all those kinds of things that are the general class rules. But you know it's remarkably uh, competitive how the how close the cars are when magnetism is removed from them because your only downforce is just what gravity offers you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to get into originally this episode I wanted to do history of war but I kind of decided like there's so much history of slot cars just might as well include all the history but I know Aurora I did a couple uh, days of research on them and originally they actually started out making airplane models and car models and, and just plastic action figures and they were just a regular toy company Aurora um, Plastics Incorporated that was yep. the original name Aurora Plastics Incorporated yep mm -hmm. And they kind of discovered this. It was they were at a British toy show, and I think it was late 50s, 58. I'm not totally sure. It said late 50s, but they saw the Playcraft's model motoring line, which was originally meant for model railroads. Which I know maybe not many of my generation might might know, but slot cars were originally meant to be used with model railroading sets. Mainly England, their popular scale was the double O scale or 76, one to 76 scale. And uh, it's kind of been mistaken for HO scale here in America, but the reason they did that was to more appeal to the American audience than to say, like, oh, this is double O scale. Like, they would have no idea what you're talking about. But I thought that was kind of cool that slot cars originally started as one of my other hobbies that I used to be well into is model railroading. So. And you think about railroads. What were railroads? They were the tech giant of mm -hmm. our great-grandfathers. I mean, they were in mm -hmm. awe to see some of those railroad cars go by with their trains and engines. And so mm -hmm. they, they developed a model icon with the model railroad. And the uh, early HO sets, some of them, the rural ones, had railroad crossings built into them so that you could actually have your train cross right mm -hmm. where your little slot car was going. So they were mm -hmm. about that. You know, Chase, if you'd like to do this, I'd be glad to facilitate this for you. Uh, there is a guy, uh, Pat Dennis. Hmm. Pat and I have worked together a little bit, and Pat is, oh, he's about 10 years older than me, and Pat has that history of the beginning, the genesis of slot car racing down totally. He was there for it, and Pat wow. was the Tyco engineer who created the Tyco Pro. Uh, Pat wow. won some of the HOCCI competitions, and Pat, Pat made his living in the hobby industry from about 68, and, and he then will follow up with some of the matchbox cars after he left Tyco, uh, and uh, he's, he's just a fascinating guy to talk to. Mm -hmm. um, Pat was really all about helping to get some of the gravity car concepts put together, because when he was at Tyco, he made some advanced cars that he was trying to promote Tyco to go to after the Tyco Pro, and they wouldn't quite bite into it because they were saying, no, Pat, these are too much of a slack car thing. We're, a, we're toy makers. And they didn't mm. quite want to go for his sidewinder that he he prototyped mm. and built in around 71 or something like that. And just mm. a car way ahead of its time. Wow. Things. 
But yeah, he, he uh, Pat told me and gave me a photocopy article of it that the first slot car racing was actually in Kalamazoo, Michigan, uh, my hometown, and uh, gave me some uh, a paper article on some of that car and the racing there. And that was stuff, of course, that was just sort of being hand done. Uh, and it then took off to the next level 24 scale, which HO, half O gauge, <laughs> took off by third. And that's why we always uh, we forget its roots as half O gauge on the uh, start of that. Mm. So Aurora kind of had their golden age. Once they introduced the model motoring line, it was pretty much off from off from there. Uh, I know I read originally the cars were they were called vibrator cars, and they kind of looked like kind of looks like a yeah. door buzzer to me. And the thing with those cars was what people com customers complained about was they were hard to keep going, maintain. And they were obnoxiously loud. Like they, have you ever, have I've you ever seen one? Sound, yes, have I have. Oh, you know what I mean. Then it's a buzz going around the track. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It is just a very. I mean, it's cool to see history, but it's annoying sound in the world. I can imagine how it can get old for parents of kids that bought those sets just yeah. to hear that all day, just doing that. But, but it's cool, cool to see that. Peak. You know, that was one of the things that they could do is they ran on an AC current. You, they couldn't run on a DC. And uh, and so, you know, that was probably some of the earlier current perversions that they were doing. But, yeah, the toy industry wasn't uh, the 24 scale industry was really toy based in the early 60s, mid 60s. Mm -hmm. And it became more hobby esque by the late uh, 60s. And uh, and of course, other toy companies that were out there making early HO cars were Faller in Germany. Uh, and then there was Tyco who was making them, and um, and then much later Riggin and um, Dynabrute were some other spinoffs that were more of a hobby car they were going with. But there's no doubt that the big kid on the block was Aurora uh, mm. with their their stuff there. Mm -hmm. And once they designed the, I think it was around, if I can remember off the top of my head, it was '63. I think is when they originally designed the Thunderjet 500 as a revision to the vibrator car and it's it's pretty much been it was again off from there they sold over 65 million of these chassis it's wow. not known how what the exact number is they sold but it was around it was more than 65 million that they produced mm -hmm. but it's kind of it's amazing how i'm actually i have one right here but it's basically this chassis design is just immortalized just how an engineering marvel it was its time and how easy it is to service and it's just easy to swap parts in and out of easy to set up swap swap armatures for example it's very easy to do that and it's just nuts how just this design has just lasted through the test of time even though it had multiple revisions once the afx line came around but it's it seems like the thunderjet has just retained its place in slot car lore to this time well, keep in mind some of that lore is that was the toy that the baby mover played with at that time. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. now that's the toy they want to play with now. <laughs> and so that's where it, it's, it sets in. It's, you know, the, the, the advanced designs, you know, the AFX design, the Magnet Traction, the G-Plus were all improvements. They were all improvements mm -hmm. on that old car. But it wasn't the car you were racing when you were 12 years old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that's yep. where a lot of the, when the... Uh, 
Thunder Jet sort of got reinvented in the uh, late 90s and the T-Jet racing started kicking around. I remember doing a couple of those events and it's like, wow, this is cool. My old T-Jets, I'm going to go race them. And it was really fun. And uh, but that that um, that uh, old uh, let's say what's the car called vintage that old vintage slot car uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden got a little bit tweaked as it became the freight car, which was far from the uh, configuration of the original old T jet with skinny mm-hmm. tires and sliding <laughs> around the tracks and cars rolling over when they fell off and all that stuff. You know, that's that was not what the freight car was, you know, but it, that was just the nature of racing. You always try to go faster. Mm. And the T-Jet pretty much it was kind of hard to track when the original Thunderjet was. I was thinking late set early 70s is when they pretty much phased out. Because I know I've seen catalogs or catalogs from the early 70s with some Thunderjets in it. But it seemed like 71. It kind of just was put it was faded into obscurity. Just I think that's accurate. Uh, they had a, for a while, they had kind of the most robust line of T-Jets, which was, was the tough ones. And the tough mm-hmm. ones were kind of an upgrade to that. And then somewhere around 71-ish, the uh, AFX was put out there. And it had the uh, uh, some design and parent things where the axle was raised up so you could run bigger tires that would get better traction. And then they put better magnets in it with the, uh, the Super 2, which was a really the most robust mm-hmm. AFX that they put out there, which had mm-hmm. weights on it that floated and... Uh, had a really substantial rewind in it, uh, and mm. so that was kind of the transition away from the T-Jet world because the axle line raised up, the gear plate changed on it, and mm. uh, it became a, a little lower slung car. Mm. I always like to say, I know me and Adam have mentioned it a couple times in the podcast already, but mm-hmm. it's just amazing how the basically the magnet traction, which I'm actually holding now, was basically the start of many of the hopper class. It was like the grandfather of the magnet traction, all the magnets classes we have today. And I've actually taken a pretty big fascination to them, how just, they're just cool to me, even though they can be a pain in the butt to service, but they, I just, I've taken a liking to them. They're like a beefed up, I mean, basically a beefed up T-Jet, which basically is, but it's, it's just something to them that's just really cool. I can't explain it. Well, there is. Uh, and, you know, uh, as I shared with you, a hopper racing, we were allowed to modify the car. So when the AFX came out, some of the guys quite by accident discovered that when the magnets were dropped down on the pan, because we were running brass pans then, that the cars magically mm-hmm. handled better. We thought it was lower center of gravity. We hadn't caught on yet that we were creating a little magnetism. And mm-hmm. um, in around 70 we were solidly on that 74, 73, that there was magnetism there. And uh, mm-hmm. we recognized that. And the car, we developed basically an AFX with the magnets fully dropped, much like a magnet traction. It had mm-hmm. wipers in the front instead of pickups. And mm-hmm. those cars were quite fast. And that, that design is very stable because, it, you know, as the car slides, a magnet stays over the rail. Because mm-hmm. unlike an inline where the magnets are parallel to the rails, this car had the magnets transverse to the rail, so the car could slide and still have downforce. And so you had a little more real-world driving. And that was the design I worked with, was a modified AFX with magnets fully dropped uh, in 1976. Um, so that was a design that was being raced uh, in the from 74 and on. We got rid of the pans. The pans weren't doing nothing with the magnets. <laughs> so. Yeah. 
And during my research, this early 70s was around the time that Tyco started to really come to a census on the inline design and start to really perfect it. And once they released it, it seemed that that was kind of, was that the end for Aurora? I know they tried to keep up later on with the G, the G plus line in the late seventies, but do you think it was probably too late then once, because Tyco had beat them to the inline race pretty much? Well, you need to talk to Pat Dennis. We're going to set you up there. <laughs> Pat uh, was behind that movement. Pat was kind of his own player, and Tycho decided this guy who built this way cool dragster that won in the HOCCI competition and was writing some superb articles for Car Model Magazine should be their lead engineer. And Pat came into Tycho, and he uh, formulated the Tycho Pro, which was was a superior car to the AFX in a non-magnetic form. And so he um, then uh, that car really took off, sold a bucket load of cars and yeah. uh, this is probably 72 71 somewhere in there pack mm-hmm. clarify the years on that that was kind of my some of my lesser years in racing is that sound like getting too bright on me there yeah that sounded right yeah. okay I, I i don't think i can the curtain's already pulled there so we'll just i'll tell you what we'll do we'll try tipping it over here a little bit and see if we can make my face less white i just looked up there and saw what you're seeing there that's maybe that's too dark well that'd make me look a little more serious um yeah. So he, he got that design really developed, but then Magnet screwed everything up. Uh, mm-hmm. Tom Bowman, who was a racer from Minnesota, uh, Tom discovered that refrigerator magnets, those bar magnets that you put on a refrigerator, if you glued mm-hmm. them to the bottom of your car, the cars got phenomenally fast. And Tom mm-hmm. showed up with a couple of Indiana races and just kicked everybody's butt around 72, 73, and nobody knew what the hell was going on. And we just outlawed the bar magnet car. And mm-hmm. that's, but eventually we're figuring out that motor magnets dropped and accomplished the same thing. And then Tyco was caught up with the same race in, uh, uh, you know, in the 70s as they started to have some designs that had magnets dropping down. And then Aurora came out with the G Plus, I think it was 76, 77, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. 76. Yeah. And so uh, that, that, that then took them into the magnet world on that. Yeah. So I'll let you take me from where you're coming from, from your perspective, to fill in some gaps with you. Yeah. Uh, uh, basically, uh, based on my research, I've seen a lot of different uh, definitions of how Aurora, as uh, mm-hmm. soon as the early 80s came around, it, the like I said, the baby boomers were starting to mature. They were starting to graduate high school, go to college, tend to jobs, start their own families. And slot cars kind of took a backseat to more pressing issues. And they went up to the they either went up to the attic or out in a garage sale or parents sold them in a garage sale. And it kind of had this dead period in the eighties where it just Aurora went out of business. I believe 83, I believe is when they, because I've heard many different stories, like they went bankrupt or something called receivership, which is just rights being acquired from another company. I do know AFX is still around today. They're a spinoff. Uh, Royal Factory Experimentals. I believe they're under the Tomy Corporation nowadays. They're they're kind of a, a satellite company to Tomy, but I'm not totally sure of that. I've only seen two sources that uh, state that. But I just find it kind of odd how just the main company can enter receivership and just their assets. Their assets they're kind of still around, but they're kind of not. You know, I can't in great depth 
fill in your voids there. But uh, you've got part of the story. And if you got uh, Pat Dennis as one of your Skype sessions here, or if you get uh, Gary Beadle as one of your Skype sessions, we can help fill in some of those gaps mm -hmm. um, that you're talking about. Uh, Aurora was around and uh, I don't know exactly when they changed or what they changed, but they were then became a Canadian company. Mm. And I actually, my friend Tom Hitchcock and I went up to Canada in 1982 and we were sponsored, it was 82 or 81, we were sponsored racers of Aurora at the time. Mm. And we got to go up there and look at a thousand, um, give us, they handed us a thousand uh, um T plus magnets to choose from. Mm. And, uh, we got we came home with a pile of track, which eventually became a six lane track that was put in a Michigan hopper thing and, and all that nice. stuff. So now it was like they're right in the tail of their career uh, and what was going on. But the, the, at that time, uh, uh, when they were in Canada, they uh, had uh, they get their bar, you know, big box loads of parts from um, Asia, and then they would send them out and sort them out and send them out that stuff there. And meanwhile, Tyco was gaining a momentum with its stuff and still had the X2 and the X1 that was their later magnet morph form of this whole thing on that. Uh, but one guy in the background there uh, that he would, carries on the tradition of what we call AFX is Jim Russell. Have you come across Jim Russell's name? I've heard of him, yes. Jim Russell is passed now, and his son has what we call HPS. That was High Performance Spares which was a line that, that Jim started with uh, with Aurora's uh, blessing and high performance spares was his. But at some point, Jim then became the owner of the AFX thing that then uh, created the Tommy car and he had his own Max car that he created in the late 70s. And he's a very entrepreneurish man. Um, have you ever seen an old Parma controller that has an R on it? Uh I might have a, a maybe when I first started into researching the history, but I'm not totally sure if it was that, the right R, that R on a Parma controller is Russell. Jim Russell is the R behind the Parma controller. He invented that. And then oh. Parma bought the design from him. And so he's been he's one of these background industry people like Pat Dennis doing his thing, contributing towards the hobby on that part of things. Um, so yeah, we we basically you're starting to lose the toy company roots as we go into the 80s and all the toy company money and momentum is going away and you have a bunch of guys out there who still like their cars and like their hobby and all that stuff and so they're uh, looking for something and people like Gary who are developing a business in uh, later uh, Wizard and later Tony uh, um, start to develop their own cars and parts and get much more serious to support the hobby industry as we transition to, from a toy thing with young guys to a hobby industry that's really supporting people who are one step up from, uh, you know, the eight-year-old under the tree uh, with their car broke. <laughs> the Christmas tree, <laughs> that's the tree I'm referring to. Yeah, because as you said, the eight-year-old, I started out with the Carrera Go cars, if you know what those are, the 132nd scale, which okay. those, yeah. those were Carreras, I think they were the cheapest line of Carrera cars. The Goes were kind of like the economy version of the actual 132nds. And I raced those for a little bit. And when I started to get into HO was when my dad 
uh, up in, he lived down in Wheelersburg, Ohio, Southern Ohio. And my grandparents had a storage unit down there of all their stuff. And we went down there to look in it one day and we pull out an old lifelike NASCAR set. It was mm-hmm. the 500 set with Richard Petty and Kyle Petty. Mm-hmm. And, and I, we took it home, set it up. And we pretty much raced that the entire evening that evening, if I remember right. I had to have been probably around at least 10 or 11 when I first yeah. kind of got my glimpse into the lifelike cars and how I wrecked a lot, but hey, it was fun. Like, mm-hmm. It was just awesome. I actually still have one of the cars here, which uh, it's one of the old Model M lifelikes, which this is the Richard Petty car that came out of okay. it. Okay. Yeah. But sadly, my uh, mom decided to sell it in a garage sale, so that kind of <laughs> bummed yeah. me out now that I'm into yeah. this hobby now. But uh, it's just interesting how, I mean, even a person my age can be introduced to some of this stuff. And it's, I really think my generation is not very mechanically inclined. We, no. we are more no. of, we're more of sit at home, play video games all day. And our main dream is to become a YouTuber, which is a totally just out-of-the-park dream. Like, there's no way that you can be a full-time YouTuber. But it's – I just think we need more challenges, especially mechanically, because cars aren't going away anytime soon. And if you don't know how to change a tire or change oil, you're in trouble. And I think especially what me and Adam thought about – was we need to spread this hobby more to our generation and encourage them to be mechanically creative. I mean, you can be creative with slot car racing. Like you said, the building side involves a lot of creativity, a lot of I mean, methodical engineering, just and problem solving, basically. Like, how can I get this car to go faster on this track? And I just believe we need to get more of our generation into to keep this hobby going because – to see how much this hobby has rebounded over the past I mean, 20 years since the 90s, it's we want to keep that rebound going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the the national event now has its own um, momentum, and pretty much you know a hundred racers are going to show up, regardless of where we put it, and regardless of what tracks we're racing on, because it's got its own reputation and momentum. Uh, you know, there were times where we could derail it pretty badly if we went to a poor facility, didn't have good tracks and stuff like that. But it's bigger than that now because the reputation has grown beyond that. It had that much support with it. So it's it's more much more robust in that respect. But you're right. Um, uh, observation that, that I made, I told you that there were no high performance spares out there for my cars if I wanted to go faster. I had to make those. I had to fabricate. I had to have those skills. I had to be able to take my car apart and maintain it and manage it. And um, two people that we probably want to interview, to to, to your point, is Roger Percelli and Mm -hmm. R.C. Lincoln. The reason I Ah. say is both of those two people are sons of big-time racer, builder, makers. Uh, You know, it's no accident that Roger's really good. Who was Roger's dad? It was Tony. And Mm -hmm. he grew up in a slot car home. And what, is it, what was that mentoring like that Roger's his own person now? I mean, Roger won the Opera Cup last year. He's a mm-hmm. great, he's a great designer and innovator. And uh, how, did, how did he get that mentoring? 
And the same thing with R.C. R.C. got some of that from his dad and is his own person now in terms of what he does out there in the industry. And they could offer some insights into uh, the transitioning of those skills to the next generation because they are them. They're not baby boomers. They're not these people who grew up with the trees on the set. They're people who were introduced to the hobby and had strong role models in their parents. And I think we should really look to interviewing them to find out more about that process. I failed. My daughter used to come downstairs and I'd be working downstairs. She says, I want to help. I want to help. And I go, um, and I'm doing some real little tight technical thing. And she's eight. And I'm like, no, honey, you can't quite help daddy with this. <laughs> and uh, I don't want to say I lost her because she'd love to go around the track and just play with the cars and race around the track. And she had fun and still gets a good smile on her face. And my two grandkids, they, they love coming down the track. But it's really tough, that transition from from just a little toy to making it into something that's bigger than that. And mm-hmm. whether that's just learning to take it apart and oil it and change the pickup shoes and do a different mm-hmm. body, simple stuff like that, or whether it's at the other extreme that, that, that I do out there. And how do we bridge that gap? I mean, that's a begging question that is out there constantly on the minds of the senior racers who had this hobby. We want to see it continue to persist. And a viable, healthy hobby car that's supported by hobby roots, because we're not going to get the toy people back there. They're gone. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. How do we create that hobby car and have people who know how to reach out to it, use it, and race it? We've mm-hmm. solved the track problems. There's lots of routed tracks. Have you even raced on a, you've raced on a plastic track? Oh, but, yeah. But most of them are hobby tracks now. They're, they're tracks that are routed. And uh, and they're they're substantially higher quality than the plastic snap together tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy how CNC routed tracks have just gone on the rise. I mean, there's so many different manufacturers. We, our club here in Central Ohio, we have mostly we have Max tracks. Paul Niffin, great guy, and he makes such great quality products. I mean, his tracks are really really excellent quality. I mean, TKO, this is what the, our second pretty much track manufacturer uh I'm trying to think and then there's other one wizard wizard that's the other one i was thinking about which i don't well, see many wizards but yeah. they're really nice tracks too but it's century and I, there they were another uh, company century 21 and then um uh the what's the buck track and now it's called what's the buck track called that's the one that gary pushed out there on the west coast uh, hmm. oh if i say it you'll recognize it it begins with a b the i've, I've had some brain damage Palmer. I don't, I don't always recall my names quickly. <laughs> but at any rate, yeah, they, there's a lot of those tracks out there. They're the Scorpion. Mm-hmm. You've seen a Scorpion. Yeah, I know. Actually know that. And my personal track in my basement is a uh, Bonsai track, which is made by them, too. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Because I'm set. I've always wanted to have my own track, but currently it's in a bin over there. But I have a whole bunch of Tommy track that I acquired from just – that's what I love about my just the local clubs is that there's always guys willing to help you. Mm-hmm. And I'm really lucky to have guys like Martin Benner, Ryan Peoples, you might know them, but they excellent, very nice guys. I mean, reached out. I mean, especially the other guys at the club that just gave me track and just because I want to do five by nine Tommy, keep it simple. But only problem is here in suburbia where I live, here in Columbus, there's no space for to for a track here in my house and uh i'm actually in college right now community college but as soon as i move out to my own apartment i'm my number one priority is getting that track up and running and just 
just it's really awesome to have your own track and not have to I mean I know the hobby shops are not really around anymore, which I wish there were more that you could rent out just practice time on certain tracks, but just every Saturday we have a race, but just get practice time. I mean, main model of our club is just more pre- like just much track time as humanly possible that you can get. And really love that for a club. I mean, especially new guys we introduced that just, they get, you get so much track time out of races weekly. And it's crazy how many local racing clubs around. I, that's probably what the next episode's going to be about. I'm really intrigued to help people find local clubs around the nation. And a really good resource, Sean Moneypenny, uh, gave me some really good resources. He actually run, has a website where he has a whole map on local club, local HO racing clubs around the nation. And I'm really going to use that to help out people find their clubs and uh, get, get more people into the hobby. That's the main goal of this. It's just well, and the internet. Hobby affords that opportunity what you're doing affords that opportunity and uh, at the Nats race I uh, videoed some of the uh, I had an interview with Sean at the Nats race it was a 50-minute interview I had an interview with RC Lincoln at the Nats race I had an interview with Al Thurman at the Nats race I was trying to collect those things I don't know if I'll put them to YouTube or whatever but the legacy of this needs to be passed on the information needs to be passed on mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. cool thing about what we have going, unlike 24th, is the tracks can fit in a basement. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not an option in, in, a, in a normal house to fit a 24th scale track in there. Mm-hmm. But there is an opportunity for an HO track to fit in there. Mm-hmm. You know That's, what? The, you've, yeah. you've heard of a 24th scale track called a Blue King? Uh, I might have. I've not really dabbled in 24 yet too much, but I have probably heard of that at one point. American Tracks made made that track, and it was the blue track. But one particular track went into a very famous person's house, the mm. king, Elvis Presley. Mm. And that's why it became the blue king. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so that became a very famous layout in 24th scale racing. And now there's variations of that. But Elvis Presley could have a house big enough for a blue king. You and I will not. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> and, no. Uh, the practice. 1975 is any place I move to, uh, I will say, okay, will my four by 12 foot track be able to fit in some room in this house? And I'll be walking it through in my mind as I'm seeing if it will actually fit into that house. And that's, that's one of my criteria. A lot of walkout uh, basements are very popular with the HO crowd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the extra room in the house. I mean, yeah. It's- awesome with HO racing that that's the beauty that's the um uh, uh, don't know how to describe it but just the uh, uh can't even think of the word for it but just how cool it is you can just fit a, compared to 132nd and 124th you can fit a track in your basement if you're I mean if you get the right size track and mm-hmm. the layout you want I mean you could pretty much be flexible anyway with uh just layout wise that's what I like about homie track it's a great starter track. I mean, you can, there's so many different layouts you can look up. I mean, internet, hoslotracing.com. I mean, tons of different Tomy uh, layouts. And I've actually created some custom elements, custom bus stops, which I'm, I was working on just a couple of weeks ago, just customizing bus stop turns. And just, I want to have just a custom layout. I just think that's so cool just to build your own elements pretty much. Hey, I just remembered the name, Chase, of uh, Bristol. Mm-hmm. Is the name Bristol. 
out yeah. there in the West Coast. Mm. And I think you can still order a Bristol Trek. Hmm. Nice, nice. So I kind of want to deviate from the questions here. I mean, I always offer a recap of how our weekly race went, but we went to Ron Lewis's max tracks called the Road Trip Raceway in Hilliard, Ohio, and we raced our 12-volt class, which is basically our stock Viper V1 chassis, uh, brass weights, stock magnets, and basically and Viper tires. Most of us were racing Viper M1 compounds, but... Uh, Ryan Peoples finished first this week. Um, I almost had it. I was leading for three mains in the A main, and I think it was kind of, well, I'm not going to put this in as an excuse, but Ryan was re- using a cheetah body for his 12-volt. I was using a, a custom body, which I have it right here. I haven't even cleaned it up yet, but here it is right here. But it's not, not sure what type of body it is, but it's a very prototype-looking body. But Anyway, I lead for the first three segments, and last segment, I Ryan's body bre- breaks, and there's a track call. We he has to use a different body, which turns out to be a better handling body than the Cheetah, and I end up coming off in a few times. And when you come off a few times with those 12 volts, it's you lose a lap every single time you come off, and I lost by probably three laps. I had had it, but just, just multiple circumstances just led me to lose the race. But finished second. I mean, second's fine. A main finish. But next week, we're going to Ryan's Max Tracks in Canal Winchester, and he has a really nice Max Tracks layout. We're going to be doing the Frey cars, but we call them Mod T Jets up here. But, uh, Really fun night of racing, though, last night. Keeps you coming back, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You're going to do better the next time, aren't you? Yeah. You know what you need to do. You're going to make it happen, aren't you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just got to learn. Just got to move on. sucks you in. Mm -hmm. It's just it keeps you going, really. I I mean, of course, you're going to have frustrating moments and a couple learning moments, especially with me being a rookie. This is only my second year. Well, coming up to... January this year, I'll be two years in the sport, so I'm learning every single race, and especially being uh, Ryan Peoples is a great racer. He, like, he is, whenever he's at a race, he's always a threat to win, and it's just crazy how much I've learned about car building and just maintaining it and just racing in general, how to keep a car on the track and just how much that I've came from finishing last every race to being a threat for the A-Main every night. So um, 12 volts are one of my favorite classes. Just I really like the speed of them and the grip that they have. And, uh, but even though mods is where, uh, I don't know, T-Jets have this entirely different aspect to them that I like, just how just old school that they are and uh, just how... Uh, flexible it could be in terms of setups compared to even though vipers can be pretty good with setups if you know a lot about them but i haven't really dabbled in those but just how flexible the t-jet is in terms of setup it's just awesome and uh learning new things every day like uh like you're like always oil the car before the main i made that mistake and that was not a very pretty mistake almost burnt the car up but i mean i'm learning new things every single day so you use ball bearings, you don't have to oil. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't think bearings are allowed, though, in our club. I don't think we allow them, but. Can I help uh, your car? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. My, my rigs have bearing, ball bearings in them for that reason. The last Midwest race, um, uh, two people, their, their bronze bushings went dry and mm. they were putting out a squeak. And uh, one guy had to drop out, Al Thurman, great at gravity racing. And the other guy who finished second beat me by one lap, dirty dog. Mm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. He had a dry bearing that was costing him time. Mm. Yeah. But at any rate, that's racing. That's the stuff that keeps making you I can do yeah, this. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. It happens. Like, I had a couple instances, and in the uh, I had really good runs the first three segments, but especially – like not, it might be a different lane color for you guys for the all the way on the outside lane. We call we have the red lane is what it's called yeah. all the way on the outside. And that lane, you, you are the cleanup guy. Basically, if someone wrecks on the inside of you and they go like you're basically the cleanup guy. And uh, it just happens when I just got someone wrecked in front of me. I got wrecked too, but it it happens. It's the other thing racing. that happens red lane in gravity racing is that's where all the marbles go. Mm. Uh, we're raising the marbles that shoot out there from the tires mm. shedding the tires yep. shed and then all the shed goes out and you're offline in gravity racing we're real sensitive to the surface and you can pick up a lot of track crap when you're in mm. red lane and it really hurts you mm-hmm. yeah you i've never heard about that yeah that's kind of interesting because that's more a phenomena of a low downforce car than a high downforce car. Because a high downforce mm-hmm. car kind of works around that. So I mean, you don't feel it. You don't have the feel of your car with a high downforce car. Mm-hmm. Wow. Just how fast you guys, I mean, how fast those gravities go. I can imagine those tires just, I mean, just even though they build, there's great tires for those. But they just sometimes just, and how, how much speed they're going, they just can't handle it sometimes and how much they shred. But, well, the, the tires on a gravity car actually wear faster than they do on a super stock. And huh. the reason is not that we're going slower. We are going slower. It's not that we, it's our tires slip. And that slip wears the tires. We slip when we spin going down the straightaway. We slip when we slide in the corner. Whereas a super stock stays planted and the tires mm-hmm. never slip like that. And so a super stock tire lasts a lot longer than a gravity tire. Gravity is one of the most brutal cl- tire classes on the tires. Hmm. that's the same thing with us for it's kind of like the opposite for us for vipers we it's really hard on shoes for us because mm-hmm. the just how uh downforce it has I me mean, even the stock viper you're pretty much almost stuck to the rail mm-hmm. and uh, how much those shoes just like get pushed against the rail they just wear out so quick even even with i'm straightening them out and making sure they don't toe and heel they still just you got to replace them almost every race but uh, I can relate to you in the tire situation, especially with our fray cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though Wizard makes excellent tires, that's what we mainly use, even though there's some guys that use Victory. But uh, just some of their – just after a couple races, the sidewall starts to go out, and once the sidewall is off, it's pretty much over. For yeah, just, your, your competitive yeah. pace drops off dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Had multiple of those moments. It's the most, it's the most unlucky thing to have a tire shred mid race. When you think before, it's like, oh, it looks okay, but then later you don't see a, a little rip in the sidewall, and then later in the race you find out why the heck does this have like no grip? 
at all, or why am I wrecking all the time? And then you pull the car off the track and sidewalls gone. <laughs> yeah, you have to know the sweet spot of your tire, how long that sweet spot time-wise is. And you have mm -hmm. to plan for it. Brand new tires are not quite right. They have to break in some, and then you have that sweet spot time. How long is that? Judge, uh, it, wrong. Judge it wrong, and you're losing. Mm -hmm. But sweet spot is probably... For me, once because Wizard comes with this clear plastic layer, it's kind of weird over the tires, and you have to sand it off to get it down to the actual like silicone surface. So usually, I only have to replace tires on mods probably every, depending on the tire, every two or three races, depending if they look good. If they look good, I might race them or practice with them, rip them to shreds and practice, and. Uh, that's why I always have a reserve pair of tires on me, just in case if something like that happens. But I also save the old tires. The right rears sometimes don't get worn at all. It's mostly the left rears that get worn. But I might swap it out for like an old right rear that looks pretty good, which just for practice or something. But it's pretty. It's really interesting how many different like how much tire swaps you can do, especially mm -hmm. with the height and just how much. So, so we're probably going to wrap it up here. Okay. Uh, I'd really like to thank you for coming on sure. and uh, just talking to me. I had a really fun time talking, especially about the yeah. history of the sport and just continuing the sport on just how I've realized how passionate I am for this and how freaking fun it is to race these. And especially what I like about it is the fellowship. Just mm -hmm. meeting people. I mean, it's there's a social aspect to every race. You talk, you're gonna talk with at least maybe four or five people mm -hmm. per race, like I do every club race. But it just helps me unwind at the end of the week. I mean, co especially college. I mean, college sucks. I mean, especially with finals coming up, it's kind of like a way, my way to relieve stress and to basically let loose and basically have fun. That's what I like about it, just having fun. I, you know, I. I did race through college and there was times that uh, it had to take uh, racing had to take some of what of a back seat to college i mean i still did it but i couldn't do it with the equal intensity depending upon what i was doing at the time mm -hmm. it was kind of like i mean even though i only i don't get to race because dayton there's a club in dayton here mm -hmm. in ohio but i can't race with them because they race wednesday nights so they kind of more appeal to the the retired people that don't like, I mean, I usually work second shift, so I, I can't really race Wednesday nights, even though I really want to uh, go to a Dayton race sometime. I haven't been to one yet, but another nice group of guys. But uh, that's why the Saturday core races have appealed so much to me is just how open it is. And with my college, I get Fridays off, so I usually try to get my homework done Fridays, so I don't have to worry about it come sa Saturday when I come to race. It's like my relaxed day. So. And uh, for us in the original Hopper series, we were college guys, young guys. And so we had our series in the summer when we were mm -hmm. off. And then as we got older, we said, what the hell are we racing in the summers? This is stupid. We have jobs now. We should race in the winter when we don't want to have use of race. And we just flipped the seasons from summer to winter as we got mm -hmm. older because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the summer is really good for, I mean, especially me and Chris Rondo, especially. We're both one of the younger guys, and Adam, too. 
I mean, we'll be off school around the time, even though I'll probably be taking at least one summer class for college, but uh, depends. I know I I might tell tell my professor, whoever's teaching at the beginning, that this this event is just like very important. It's like very high up in turn. It's very great. Op- it's a once in a lifetime. I wouldn't say it's well, it is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to race at the national level, and just how. It's just how cool it is, how they try to get new people in the sport, especially with the amateur class. It's like you can just come in and just race, and maybe with other people that are brand new, which me and Adam really want to race the amateur super stocks, which I've looked up on YouTube, and those look really fun to race, and hearing how uh, similar they are to uh, just the classes that we run. So uh, we're really, really excited and pumped up for when they come to Aurora, Ohio in june so so as we're wrapping some things up with here chase um would you like for me to facilitate uh, you having a chance to uh talk to some other opera historians uh, there are a couple really sure. good ones that can provide you with some great insights into some of the stuff that happened there and you talk to mark rosenwinkel you can get a history of the hopper organization founding mm-hmm. an organization uh if you talk to al thurman he was at that first uh, Indiana Hopper race in 1969. <laughs> you know, there's some people out there that that have some really long-term roots. If you wanted to hear that part of things, uh, but uh, you know, uh, now if you want to talk to Pat Dennis, you can find out his role in Tyco industry and and how he helped to create the Tyco Pro and that evolution in the hobby stuff. Uh, definitely, definitely. I'll take a few of those for you if you'd like to have those future conversations, or sure. if you wanted to. Um, uh, see a full-blown shop like mine. I'm, I'm right now in Texas sitting at my sister's house. And um, mm-hmm. if you want to see, be, have a shop tour with me uh, at my place, you can see what a full-blown HO shop is that does everything. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That sounds really interesting. I'd really like to see that. Mm-hmm. Let's see that. So I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Uh, please tune in next week. I'm going to be doing, we'll, we'll hope Adam's uh, back next week. But uh, we're going to be doing something, I just thought of an idea, just local racing episode. Just We're going to do a casual Facebook Live, and people can send a request for what area they're in, and just we can find that HO Slotker Club for you and just connect you to the Facebook group. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a nice night. Have a very nice Thanksgiving, too. I almost forgot to say that. Have a nice Thanksgiving because I'm very excited to because I'm going to be going to Illinois this year to visit family for thanksgiving so that'll be fun so all right all right see you guys